0: Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the Tableland from the tribe of Ruman, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Verses 4 through 42 go along to explain that inheritance and then picking up in verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all Came to pass. This is the word of the Lord. That was a little timid this morning. All came to pass. That was good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. As we sit before your word and as we listen to your voice by your spirit this morning, we ask that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. That we'd know what this ancient passage means for us today as we serve you in the inheritance that's been won through Jesus Christ. Direct us and guide us and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. May 8th, 1945, Karl Donitz, the successor of Adolf Hitler after he had committed suicide in his Berlin bunker signed the unconditional surrender of the German army to the Allied powers. After 10 years of aggression through Europe, the Nazi war machine was at last finished. Needless to say, it was a relief. They had terrorized the Western world. And from one perspective, the war was over. However, from another perspective, The war was not over at all. 80 million people were dead. Europe's infrastructure was destroyed. The economic capacity and growth engine was nullified. Cities were decimated. Cultures were turned upside down. Nazis were blending into the broader population as they attempted to escape armies that were occupying lands were not behaving well either, and the social and cultural tensions that had given rise to World War II were not suddenly gone. Yes, the war was over in many regards, but in some ways, the war was just beginning. The war was far from over, and when we come to the end of the book of Joshua in chapters 20 and 21... These chapters can feel like just addressing miscellaneous details, but it's a mistake for us just to dismiss them simply because the conquest of the land has been realized with Israel taking the land, the, the land of promise that God had given to them, taking it by faith. But now it's a mistake to think that this is just the cleanup operation. Because, yes, while the conquest was over, it's important for us to recognize this dynamic that there is still something unfolding and there are things that Israel must attend to. We're told in chapter 21, in verses 43 through 45, that the con- conquest was complete. God did not fail, God did not falter, He brought everything to pass. And this is the great theological truth that we affirm week by week that our God doesn't fail to make good on his promise. And when God promises that the nations of the earth belong to Jesus Christ, and because you are in Jesus Christ, that that is your inheritance, he doesn't fail to bring that around either. This is the promise of God. God, as sworn, had brought his people into his rest. The conquest was complete. The inheritance had been given. But now what? What was next for the people of God? What is next for us on the other side of Jesus' victory? What we see here is it's not time for Israel to take a holiday. They are not to rest and relax. Their faith is not to retire having been exercised. Now psychologically, this is the path of least resistance on the other side the tension and the conflict is to move towards ease but remember this the faith the land was inherited by faith but also the land was to be held the land was to be kept the gains were be preserved by faith as well and this is the ongoing situation for the church That God also sends us out into the inheritance won by Jesus. And we are to go out into that inheritance, establishing churches, proclaiming the gospel, making gains for the kingdom of God by faith. And then when these churches are established, we're not simply to turn to our own devices and to take up our ease and our comforts, but rather by faith we're continuing to keep and hold and preserve those gains. And so these chapters that we find in the mop-up operation in the book of Joshua, they're not irrelevant. In fact, they're highly relevant to a congregation's life and our work together because faith doesn't retire from the field. Faith is a necessity for the ongoing life of the church. And what's crucial for us this morning is to ask and answer this one question, What does the ongoing mission of the church, once the church has been established, what does that mission require? And what we see in chapters 20 and 21 of the book of Joshua is that it requires one very specific thing that has two very specific purposes. Now this one specific thing that the mission of the church requires today is that we must return to God what he first gives to us. You notice that chapters 20 and 21 are interesting because God has just given all of the tribes their inheritance. If you were to read through chapters 13 through 19, you would find the details of how each of the tribes was given a specific allotment of land. But then in chapter 20, in verses 1 through 3, and then in 21 in verses 1 through 3, you have the giving back, the request back from God for part of what had been allotted to these various tribes. Many people look at that and say, that's a head-scratcher. Did God just make a mistake somehow? But what this reflects is the principle of first fruits that we find throughout the Old Testament that God is a gracious and he's a luxurious God and he loads his people with an abundance. And when he offers an abundance, he then asks for a return that out of an act of gratitude, that something be given back to him for his purposes. And this is exactly what happens. In chapter 20, we have the request for six cities They were called cities of refuge, and we will discover the details of those cities in just a moment. But they were six cities that were to provide havens for people who accidentally killed someone. Now this must have been a large problem if there were six cities, and certainly they lived in a dangerous world. Six cities were to be given back. Those cities had been given by God to different tribes. But then the tribes, their gratitude was on the line as to whether they would return those cities gladly to the Lord for his purposes. They were consecrated, set-apart cities that God placed a claim on. And then we find in chapter 21 that the Levites, these were the priests of Israel, they did not have a tribal inheritance. They had no permanent allotment of a particular patch of ground. But they came in accord with the Mosaic law, and they said, will you set apart these cities? And so once again, the tribes had received their inheritance, and they were to return something from their inheritance to God for his purposes. And so various cities and pasture lands, all throughout the 12 tribes, were given to the Levites. And what's crucial for us to recognize here is these principles of returning and stewardship, of giving back to God what he has first given to us are crucial to the mission and life, the expression of faith that sits at the very core of the Christian church. That these principles running back all the way into the Old Testament continue to inform our lives today That we are to return to God what he has first given to us. And that when we fail to do so, we fail to align ourselves with God's purposes in his world, what he is seeking to achieve. And friends, when we hold on to God's gifts and we don't return them to him, what we're ultimately claiming is that those gifts are ours that we have possession over them, that we determine what they're to be used for. And generally what God asks for is a tithe from his people, that of the first fruits of what is received, something be given back to God and offered to him, and that in the offering, the remainder is entrusted to our care and sanctified for our use. And that's what we find happening here with the cities given to the Levites and with the cities given over for the refuge. And it's critical for us. Each year we enter into stewardship season. And our promise to you is always that we might berate you about finances. And fortunately our church is always in a strong place and condition. We have good stewardship. And there's always room to improve and to grow. And so each year we give the challenge to you about participating in giving back to God what he has first given to you, reminding you that all that you have is a gift from his, that he entrusted to your possession. And then the question is, are you faithful with it in your possession? And that the exercise of faithfulness involves returning to him what he requires and what he asks And so during the season of stewardship, it's important for us to consider, to do that internal audit, to look at our bank accounts, to look at our lives, to consider our expenses, and to ask whether they reflect these commitments and priorities. And over the next weeks, you will hear us emphasize the capital campaign as well, as we look to move ahead and advance. And we do so not simply to raise a fund, but to ask God's people to partner together financially because this is the way that God's mission and His work advances in the church. Is He ask His people to return what He has first given to them, an allotment, a portion of it, for His purposes? Now, here in chapters 20 and 21, we specifically see two purposes for what is returned to God, and it's important for us to explore both of these. The first is that these gifts are returned to God so that the church will pursue justice and mercy and equity in a fractured world. If you follow with me in verses 2 and 3 with the city of refuge... Say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee from there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now there's a bit of cultural context that you have to appreciate. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was a violent world and things ran by tribes and clans and families to a large degree. And when someone was killed, it was considered right and good for the family to appoint someone known as an avenger of blood. And so say you were in the workplace and someone accidentally died and someone fingered you as the accomplice, then the family could appoint an avenger of blood who could come and kill you. You can see where this would devolve into tribal feudalism in the Hatfields and the McCoys rather quickly. And that was the culture in which Israel was planted. And so God in his law makes accommodation that he would soften this culture and change it. Because obviously there were accidents that happened and there were people who were killed at no fault of anyone else. It was not intentioned in any way. And so cities were set up where if you were involved in the death of someone else, you could flee to that city and the avenger of blood could do nothing to you while you were in that city. And this is the way the system worked. The person who was involved in the death would show up at the city gate and there was something like a pre-trial with the elders at the city gate. And they would listen to the appeal. This normally happened first thing in the morning and then the person would be welcomed into the city. But that was not a permanent trial. There was then going to be a trial, you find this in Numbers 35, where the the individual would return to their home village, where they would then receive due process, and it would be determined whether this was manslaughter or whether it was murder. Friends, what we find here is the basis of so much Western law where there is due process and there is an emphasis upon equity. There's an interest in justice. There's an interest in pursuing righteousness. And the people of Israel were to be the shining star, an example of this in a violent world filled with retribution. And this is what the church is always to be. It's to be a model of justice, It's to be a model of equity, It's to be a model of mercy. That we aren't looking for our cues about mercy and justice from the outside world or from the culture around. We're listening for God's call and God's command in the words of scripture as to what he demands of us and what it means to be a merciful and equitable and just people. And so we're to set the tone for the world around us. We're to be that city set upon a hill We're to be that just and equitable society. Now, of course, the church throughout time has had its gains and losses in this. We've had tremendous failures in our own cultural context, perhaps the failures with race and the enslavement of African Americans, and the theological justification of that is one of the most egregious and worst losses that we've ever been a part of. That rather than applying the gospel that announces there is no Jew or Greek, that there's one man in Jesus Christ, we made people of darker skin color sit in the balcony. We consider them second class. It was wrong. And the church has had great gains, though. The church didn't appeal to the Roman Empire to take care of the babies that were left outside of the city walls that were unwanted. They didn't file for political action with the Roman Empire. They went out and got the babies and raised them as their own. That was one thing that was remarkable that Robert Wilkins points out in the first thousand years of the church's history in his book that positioned the church uniquely. People saw these Christians doing that. And then, of course, the tradition of hospitals came out of Christians taking up the burden to care for those who were in need physically, setting up places where they would be cared for that turned into hospitals. That was a Christian idea. It was to establish justice and mercy in a fractured and broken world where things go so wrong because it's a fallen world. And Christians were there trying to creatively address that knowing that they were doing so relatively and they were doing so provisionally because certainly we cannot overcome all the effects of the fracture of sin. But we can extend mercy and we can begin inside of our own household and then we can step into the broader society. There are, of course, many other examples of this. And some people will then ask the question, well, Chuck isn't our primary commission from God that we be interested in the human heart, that we're to preach the gospel, that we're to be interested, invested in the regeneration of the human soul, and that the church has nothing to do with this idea of equity and justice and mercy. And I believe that this is a short-sighted approach to all the redemption that God intends to bring to his world. We have to remember that the word regeneration, the great Dutch theologian, prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, drew it up this way. He says the word regeneration is used two times in the New Testament. In Titus 3.5, you find the word regeneration showing up. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And regeneration is intensely personal. It is salvific, where God enters into the human heart, creates it again, and gives us new life, enabling us to believe and trust in Jesus. And so yes, all of that is true. This is the work of the church. But then it's intriguing That in Matthew 19, in verse 24, you find Jesus using the word regeneration. Jesus speaks to the disciples about the new world to come. It is the regenerated world. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that regeneration is not just something that will fall upon the human heart, but it will fall upon all of creation, all of our social structures, all of our society, all of human bodies all of the decay and crumble of the creation that the creation has been subjected to after sin, that regeneration will overcome all of that. And so regeneration always involves both. It involves hearts, and it involves systems. It involves the whole world. It's cosmic in many ways. And so the church has always seen our call to extend mercy, to extend righteousness, to extend equity. And even though it's provisional and it's relative, and it doesn't necessarily need to be political, but we are seeking to roll back the effects of our world's curse in caring for people in our deeds. And yes, we care for them in word as well. And these two always hang together. And this is one of the reasons that we return God's gifts to God so that the church be enabled to minister that justice and that mercy in a fractured world. This is the claim of Joshua chapter 20. It's natural to then ask the question, but why do we care? Why do we care? We, We live in a society where people are, specifically focused upon their own needs and fulfilling those and perhaps turning over many of the cares and concerns of the church to the government. Why should we exactly care? It's intriguing because these cities of refuge and this system set up as part of the Old Testament law is a shadowy outline of something else that was to come. Follow with me in verse six. Speaking of the manslayer, And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment. And so he was returned to his own village and stand for judgment. If he was exonerated, he was then to remain in the city of refuge until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Now, isn't that an interesting provision? that if you were exonerated, you still were not allowed to return to your village. You had to remain in the city of refuge because there had been a death, even if you didn't intend it, until something else happened, the death of the high priest. And so after the high priest died, the manslayer was allowed to return to his hometown. He could go back to his family He could be received and warmly welcomed. The avenger of blood could do nothing about it. And this is all, of course, pointing in shadowy outline to what God does for us in Jesus Christ. The great high priest who dies and atones for us. The death of the priest here is seen as some atoning function where a life is given for a life and another man is set free. This is what's true of us. Justice and mercy were exercised in the death of Jesus on our behalf. And it's justice and mercy that we can't even fully comprehend. There was justice because a debt was paid, a ransom was owed, and Jesus did that on our behalf. And there was mercy extended to us. And this is why Christians have always been vested in both causes. This is why we fully give ourselves to us because it's at the very core of our faith. It's why we can put the name of God on our lips because of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we pursue justice and mercy in a fractured world. The second purpose, though, of returning these gifts to God is that we order our lives around the worship of God. If chapter 20 is about the cities of refuge, chapter 21 is about the care of the Levites and the priest. It's intriguing because the Levites weren't given one commune central to Jerusalem. That's what you might expect since that's where the temple would be, but that's not where they were collected. Rather, small villages and pasture lands were given to them all throughout the tribes of Israel. Now, why do you think that is? Why were they distributed throughout all the tribes of Israel? The answer is very easy. In the very architecture of the country, in where the people were living, the, Liv- the Levites being amongst every tribe was a symbolic reminder of the worship that each tribe owed to God. And they were to care for those Levites and to sustain them as they led the people in that chorus of song and praise and teaching and instruction and sacrifice. And so the entire country was set up to be oriented around the worship of God. And this is what the tithe of the people returning these lands, these cities to the Levites was to function and do. It oriented their entire lives to the God of the covenant and the God of the promise who had given them rest and does not fail in any one of his promises. And this is what is so important for us today is for us to consider, does the use of our own capital reflect the commitment of our lives? This is what's happening in Joshua 21. Is they were returning to God what he had first given to them so that they could be involved in the worship of God and their lives could be completely oriented and handed over to that. And does our own exercise, personal and individual as a community, does it reflect that? What are the priorities? Several years ago, a friend told me about a new computer program that might find helpful. And they were explaining it was an online platform. I don't know if it still exists, but it was called Mint. And I said, okay, well, what does this program do? And they said, well, you put in your credit card information and then it will categorize all your expenses for you. And I looked immediately at them. I said, that sounds frightening. It lines them up nice and neat for you and explains what you expended things on and how much percentage of your income was given to things. It's frightening because it's an internal audit. And when we talk about stewardship, this is where we would turn you. There's no judgment from this pulpit. My eyes don't care to see your bank accounts. But what the emphasis of God's word is, is how's the internal audit going? What do those percentages look like? Does your capital and your investment and your giving, does it reflect lives oriented around the worship and service of God? Is that the priority? Is that what we're we're given to? The worldview of the church is built around that. Of course, in former times, you had this enshrined even in public life on the public square. The highest building on the public square was always the church and the cross reaching up above it. And it was to remind people of what was most important. This is how Israel was constructed as well. And we don't live in that same society or same world. But it's important for us still to drink and imbibe the cultural values. That our lives to be centered around the worship of God. And we want to ensure that our capital, what God has entrusted to us, is used in the way that he asks for it back. And friends, that is a step and exercise of faith. As we pursue justice and mercy and exercising righteousness in our midst, as we pursue orienting ourselves to the worship of God, as we use what he entrusts to us. All of this is the ongoing exercise of faith as we live out those great commandments of God in the inheritance he's given to us in Jesus Christ. That's the command of God that we hear in Joshua 20 and 21. Let's take it up. Let's acknowledge that all is a gift. And let's return to God those first fruits that we be devoted wholly to his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all that you lavish upon us. You have placed us in this theater of your glory filled with such abundance even though it's marred by sin. And Lord, would we offer to you thanksgiving and praise with what you request that we return to you. And in returning it to you, may we be devoted to your great purposes, all that you are seeking to do in the regeneration of hearts and the regeneration of the world. And Lord, we ask that our lives would be oriented around worship and that we would gladly serve you with whole and full hearts. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.